This is the Hot Stove Report. Going, going, goodbye baseball. On 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. It is great to be back with the Hot Stove. Shannon Dreyer, James Osborne, and we will be with you for the next hour talking Mariners, talking baseball. We're not waiting for anything. We're just going to go ahead and fire up this stove right now. Why should we wait? I mean, waiting is for the birds. I'm ready to go. I've been I've been more <laughs> on it, I think, this baseball offseason than I can even remember in the last half a dozen years. This this has been exciting for me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. Absolutely. You may know us from the podcast that we do in the off season. You may know us from the vodcast a few years ago, but now, yep, we are on air. <laughs> and this is where we're going to be with you every Tuesday night until the season begins. Uh, of course, you're probably a little more accustomed to hearing and missing right now the, the dulcet tones of Rick Riz, Aaron Goldsmith, uh, Gary Hill. I think if you think about it, there is a lockout going on right now. There are certain restrictions that we have. But again, we are not going to let that stop us from talking baseball right now. And hopefully, they're with us soon. Yeah, and there's tons to talk about with the Mariners, especially coming off the season they just had and coming into the season that they're about to have once things get back going. There's just so much to be excited about. We spent a lot of the last five or six years talking about prospects and what's to come in the future. I'll speak for myself. I think the future is now, and it's getting to be the time when we can start having that excitement turn from looking to what could be to what is. And I'm I'm excited to look through that this pre-spring training season. And we're just not going to wait. We're starting right now. So coming up in the next hour, uh, in just a few minutes, we are going to hear from one of the top young arms in the Mariners organization. Brandon Williamson is going to join us from uh, pitching camp down in Arizona. Uh, we also are going to uh, we're gonna get a little assist on some numbers from Gary Hill, who uh, gives us a, a tutorial of sorts. That'll be coming up. One of the things that I'm really excited to get to do is we talk a lot of baseball on 710 ESPN Seattle, and uh, we're going to be talking a lot more. As you just said, we are excited about what is coming up. This is it. This is go time. So I thought it would be really kind of interesting and fun to kind of get into all of the hosts and others, the people who you will hear on, on our airwaves baseball from, get into their baseball stories, their baseball. I cannot wait to present that to you. So today we're going to hear a little bit more about what baseball means to Mike Salk. And what he does. So that'll be coming up a little bit later. Uh, but at, and of course, as Howdy mentioned, we've got hot stove talk. There is, we will have some legitimate hot stove coming up. But first thing is first, as I mentioned, we have the opportunity to talk to one of the top young arms in the Mariners system. Brandon Williamson is joining us. Well, Brandon, thank you for taking the time to visit with us today. I, I got an email last week and it had a list of names of, uh, players that were reporting to Peoria for a pitching camp. And, wow, it was an impressive list. It was great to see your name on that list. The Mariners, of course, have got their pitchers and some catchers down in Arizona uh, working in their Dominate the Zone camp, which is going to take them right into spring training, which is just absolutely amazing. And, Brandon, I thought you would be a great person to talk to a little bit about exactly what is going on right now down in the desert with the Mariners. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, essentially, we're just coming in every day like it's spring training um, and playing catch. We're working out. We're getting our uh, our um, therapy training in the um, training room. I mean, all hands on, basically just ramping up to get ready for spring training in the season. 
what is a typical day? I understand that uh, it's not just all on-field work. There is some off-field work as well. Yep. So uh, I'll usually get here about uh, about 8 o'clock. We'll have breakfast. Um, we'll stretch. We'll get uh, do our own little pre-throwing uh, workout, and then we'll go out to the, the fields. We'll do a team stretch. We'll all play catch, throw our bullpens if we need to, um, get everything pitching out of the way. Um, and then we'll do our rehab, post-throwing stuff. Um, then I usually jump in the hot tub and cold tub, and then I go work out. And then we eat, and we might have, uh, like, a meeting or something after that, mental training, uh, or, like, going over um, certain strategies that the, uh, that we have in place. And that's pretty much it. We go home, go golfing. There we go. Okay, we got to the golf. I, I was hoping there would be yeah. some golf in there. Who is the best golfer 100%. in camp? Who's the best golfer in camp? Um, well, if you take me out of the equation, of course. Oh, nice. I can't vote for myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, I don't know. We got we got a solid group of guys who are all about the same, and it makes it nice for when we go and play because we're all, we're all about even. We all either shoot a – uh, really, really bad day. We all have a pretty decent day, so it's good. I don't know if there's one person that's just eats everybody up, though. If if Kirby was here, Kirby's pretty good. Answer this for me. Can you break it down by position groups? Are hitters better golfers? Are catchers better golfers? Are pitchers better golfers? Is there anything that kind of characteristics or the characteristics well, they have? You just got to know that pitchers are just the golfers of the clan because we can we can go out all the time. And uh, we don't care about our swing, so I mean, we don't have to worry about we don't have to worry about you know dipping and popping up all the time. So we get to play a little more. So we got an unfair advantage, I guess. The hitters are in the video room after every golf swing and and things like that, probably breaking everything down. Uh, yeah, yeah, they they like to think that they could challenge us, but I think I think it's just it would be one sided. <laughs> Love it. Hey, I want to learn a little bit more about you. And, uh, you know, reading up uh, on you, it's not a typical path to where you are right now. And I want to know how does a six foot six lefty from Welcome, Minnesota, 686 population, if, if I'm correct here, no travel ball. Uh, it sounded like a small junior college, as far as a junior college goes. Uh, one year at TCU. And then, boom, second-round pick by the Mariners. How, how do you get there? Well, uh, out of high school, I was lucky enough to work with some good coaches and good people, and they got me involved with NIAC, my junior college. And uh, I took a 180-pound 6'6 frame and put about 30, 40 pounds on it and started just focusing all on baseball. And um, Travis Hergert, our coach down at NIAC, was just the best thing that ever could have happened to me. And um, he molded me and helped, uh, you know, develop me. And uh, that's what I needed mainly. So my two years at JUCO were strictly development. And that was exactly what I needed. I wasn't a high prospect who could just go and, you know, go play well and you'll make money. No, I needed to get a ton better. So I, I got linked up with great people at NIAC, great coaches, and that's where it really set off. And then once I got to TCU, I got to get molded a little more, polished a little better, 
And same thing, great people, great coaches, and um, just continued the development. And, and then it's just been – I've just been very fortunate to be with a lot of really good really good people that that I've taken a lot of really good info from and learned a lot. And that includes the Mariners once I got drafted. It just continued to, you know, get better and better and better every chance I got. For me, it's just I got – in with the right people, and they taught me the right way. Tell us a little bit more about your journey since you've been with the Mariners, and I'm really curious to know from a guy who comes from your background and is at where you're at through your career, what's it like to go up against new competition, new levels of competition as you advance through the minor leagues, as you see more arms come through the system? What is it like? How do you adapt your game? What do you learn as as time goes on and you see new people, new competition? You know, I I love good competition. I would rather play someone who's better than me than someone who's worse than me. So um, I think that once you keep going up in levels and keep uh, playing against better competition, it's it's more fun and it's it's um, it's it really tells you a lot where you're at in your own game, and it makes you adapt and learn what needs to be done so that you can compete at a higher and higher level. And it's, it's really nice with the Mariners because not only do we go against good competition, the Mariners have an unbelievable farm system, so we all have each other that we can, you know, go to, ask questions, like gauge each other on, and that's been, that's been huge for all of us. I think, uh, you know, our, our chain is strong because we've got so many, you know, strong links to it that are all extremely quality arms that – and we don't have a single bad, bad uh, apple in the bunch. You know, we're all we're all buddies. We have no problem telling, talking to each other about you know good outings, bad outings, learning from each other, and it's just been a really good, really good situation here. Who do you talk to? You know, who don't I talk to? I guess you know you could go down the list: Kirby, Emerson, Campbell, Stout. You know, Brash. The whole the whole nine yards. You could talk to. Anybody, Devin Sweet, the you know, we're all we all have our own little tools and crafts that make us uh, you know, talented and we can go to each other for those and pick those talents apart and learn how you know, how that how that player thinks and how it works and, you know, maybe use it to make your own your own game better. What's something that somebody gave you this year that was of significance that you take forward? Um, I tried learning my changeup. You know, the Devin Sweet is our changeup master, and uh, it's just it's just fun to go to a guy who has a really good changeup and be like, "I don't have a good changeup. How do you how do you do this? How do you throw that?" And like, I have a good understanding how to throw other pitches, but when I first got here, I had no idea how to throw a good changeup. So I'd say, and I talk to everybody. You know, ask asking them how they throw certain things but i had no idea how to throw a change up and Devin helped a lot with that how do you feel about that change up right now it's pretty good i mean i'm pretty comfortable with it it could always get better because it's significant i mean if we follow what you did i mean you, you struck out the world in everett this year you've got the fastball you've got the curveball you get to double a and it looks like you, you needed to work in some other pitches i mean it's always just polishing uh what you have and making it so that 
you can throw it where you want nine times out of ten and have it move the way you want. I think that's the challenge. It's not going up and trying to strike out a guy. It's can I make the pitch that I want to throw? And if he hits it, he hits it. And if he swings and misses, great, you know. But I think that's that's where the development has came for me is that I don't uh, I don't necessarily go against the guy in the box. I I go against what I'm trying to do and and the standard that I have for doing it. And that I think that's why I had success in striking you know a lot of guys out. We've just got about one more minute here with Brandon Williamson, and and it was uh, just so fun to watch and see the reports and what you did in 2021, especially after everything that everybody went through in in 2020. So my question to you now is, as you look ahead to 22, this year will be a success for you if you do what? Uh, You know, there's a lot of uncontrollables for me. I I don't have a lot of control in, uh, you know, a lot of decisions that happen in my career. So I think I'll, I'll feel good about whatever happens. If, if I feel like my standards for what I'm supposed to do every day, what, how I'm supposed to pitch um, are met. And if I just feel overall ready for the season, if I feel good, healthy, I don't want to measure myself in certain results um, or, you know, if I get moved up or not, it's, I think I'll just I'll feel successful at the end of the year if um, a I was healthy for the whole thing, and b if I met the standards uh, that I had for myself each day. That's a great outlook, right there, Brandon. Thank you for taking the time today, and we cannot wait to see you down in Peoria. I do hope you get a little bit of a break from camp before spring training, and of course, a lot more golf. Absolutely, thank you, guys. I cannot wait to talk to him some more down in spring training, James. So much going on there. It was a meteoric rise for him through the system last year. Great stuff. Very, very well regarded within the Mariners organization and outside. And a very good chance we see him in Seattle in 22. Did that not pique your curiosity about what it's like to be in that room right now? down at the Mariners facility with all those young arms and the oh, way that he talks about I talked to Kirby, I talked sweet, to Hand Gosh. Yeah, just yeah. that I mean I am more I'd be more interested and excited to be there right now in terms of my baseball fandom than anywhere at this current moment. I would love to be a part of that and see what's going on there. Don't want to face them though. I know that no. you wanted to face the manager <laughs> and there was a little challenge there, but you want no part of anybody that is down in that pitching camp right now. Coming up next, as promised, we're going to hot stove it a little bit. You are listening to the hot stove on 710 ESPN Seattle. The hot stove show on 710 ESPN Seattle. So James, I feel like we need to have an update of sorts. I know nothing has happened in baseball in over a month right now, but maybe a refresher of where the Mariners are. Well, yeah, it's it's sometimes hard to think about how big of an offseason the Mariners have already had because there's this big looming sort of major league baseball conversation. But the Mariners made some huge splashes to start this offseason and have put themselves in a really interesting position once uh, activity resumes. But let's take a look a little bit closer at what actually happened from the Mariners from the time they finished the season to the time that the lockout began. They made two pretty significant additions, the first being a trade to acquire Adam Frazier. Let's take a look a little bit deeper into how that impacts where the Mariners are going and what he looks like as as a fit on this team. 
Well, the fit that he is is uh, he has been a very good leadoff hitter for a long time and very much a, a contact, put the ball in play type guy and get on base, which is what you want. I don't know if they're going to use him. They like J.P. Crawford as well. So that's a great problem to have, uh, have you know two leadoff type bats at the top of the order. But I think the biggest thing in the timing of this move is that he gives Jerry Depoto one of the things that he most values, and that's flexibility. If the season were to start today, he'd be at second base. That is something that Depoto acknowledged at the time. Why does he have to acknowledge that if there aren't other opportunities out there? So that's where I think a little bit of intrigue comes in. Uh, I know that Depoto wants to add at least one more bat. And we've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast. Will it be in the outfield? Will it be another infielder? Could it be both? You heard a lot of Trevor Story talk right before things shut down. You heard some Matt Chapman talk before things shut down. Uh, you heard outfield possibilities. We know they talked to say a Suzuki. So there's a lot that could happen. But Frazier being able to play in the outfield as well and just about anywhere in the infield gives them the flexibility to find that bat and put them in multiple positions. That move was not the splashiest move. And it being the first one, it kind of reminded me of this last year's trade deadline when they first made the move to add, add Abraham Toro, I believe was the first move they made of the trade deadline. It was not what we were expecting. They weren't finished. They continued to add pieces. They add to the bullpen and they add some of the impact that we expected them to add at the deadline given where they were. Similarly, that's how the offseason started. We weren't expecting them to add somebody who, quote-unquote, lengthens the lineup, which is something that Jerry Depoto had said was a priority for the team entering this offseason. Mm. They do that by adding a quality major league bat that can play at the top or the bottom of your of your lineup that can start for you every day or play a few different positions. It's a versatile and, and important piece. But then they make the real big move that... We really weren't expecting exactly the name to be, which is Robbie Ray adding last year's American League Cy Young Award winner to the top of your rotation. Come on down. (laughs) Tell me a little bit more about that. You and I talked about this on the Talking Mariners podcast and how this was a little bit of a surprise, but it is a really, really ideal fit in a lot of ways for where the Mariners rotation is positioned. Well, that's a key, and I don't think anybody's going to turn away the reigning Cy Young Award winner as well, but you know, he did reach out through his agent. This, This was a spot that he was interested in. In and made quick work of getting it done. This is a deal that did come together relatively quickly. And I had an opportunity to talk to Ray a little bit after the press conference, and it, it just sounded like he really did his homework. And there were things that this organization had that were important to him. And let's not forget, Toronto was in town towards the end of last season, so he may have been checking things out then. But with what he has been able to do and the changes that he has made, I think it's important the people around him in what he does. And I think he likes what he saw in the staff that the Mariners have, the analytics that they use, the way that they're able to break things down. The area, you know, his wife was with him. They've got a small family, and this is an area that they felt comfortable with and, and wanted to be in. I think there was a lot that went into this, and when it, it was all said and done, the Mariners come away with that one thing that they really didn't have last year, and that was the big strikeout guy, let alone a guy that you can put at the top of your rotation. Putting him at the top lengthens your lineup in a different way, your rotation in a different way than adding Adam Frazier lengthens your lineup. Adding to the top of your rotation and pushing some of the arms that maybe were pressed into action a little bit more frequently or earlier than maybe the Mariners would have wanted them to, I think gives the Mariners some flexibility and a really interesting ability to field a a starting pitching crew throughout the season that 
might be in a better position than most. I mean, how do you see them lining up from a starting pitching perspective compared to most of the league? Funny you should ask, because I have a post on MyNorthwest.com about exactly that and what you were just talking about in the lineups. I compare if the season were to start today, and it's not, and they are expected to add more offensively. And Jerry Depoto has said he would like to add another starter as well. When you think about the young arms that are coming, it it almost becomes mind-boggling, and then you remember depth can be exhausted pretty quickly. So uh, we'll see what happens there. But, you know, as far as the rotation goes, the Mariners have a solid rotation right now. You've got that big guy that gives you your win day, what I call your win day. Not every team has it, but when you can get in your car in the morning, you're driving to the park, and you know you're going to win that night, that is significant. They have that guy. You can look at some teams that perhaps have two of those. Maybe the Angels do with Otani and Syndergaard, but we don't know. We don't know if Syndergaard is going to be, what he's going to be out of the gates. You're going to have to be a little bit careful with him. But when you look at one through five, and we don't know who five is yet right now, it could be somebody who's in-house, it could be somebody who is added, you are looking at established, established, established in one through three, and I am including Chris Flexen in established with what he did last year. you got to like the progress that you saw Logan Gilbert make. They're in good shape there, especially if they do indeed add. That takes us to the rest of the offseason when activity does resume. We've got plenty of podcasts uh, that we've talked about this already, and we're going to have plenty of hot stove episodes where we're going to be able to dive deeper into where the Mariners could be headed next. I'd be curious to know, just off the top of your head, the quickest list, what positions or what kind of things do you think the Mariners will be looking at right out the gate when free agency resumes? Well, I, I think they are still looking in infield, and you heard Trevor Story's name quite a bit. I know they like Matt Chapman as well. That, of course, would have to be a trade. They like all of Oakland's pitchers. That would be a trade, too. There's no word if they're going to be able to pull off any of the above. You look to Cincinnati and the pitchers that they have. Sonny Gray is a name that has come up quite a bit, so that would not be out of the realm of possibilities. I keep little bit of an eye on Miami, but I don't think that is as likely as likely for starting pitchers. Uh, we have not mentioned your favorite, Chris Bryant, as mm. of yet. Mm. Uh, that could be a possibility. I'm very intrigued by Seiya Suzuki. Michael Conforto is a name that's been out there. I don't think they've been in as far on that as some people want to believe. I could be totally wrong. I don't know that he fits as much, and I don't think, I think a lot of folks were thinking he might be a one-year prove-it contract. I bet he gets something longer. So I don't know that that is as much of a fit, but a lot of names out there and it's going to happen fast. And I don't know how that's going to impact everything. But once this lockout is over, there's not going to be a lot of time to put all of this together. Yeah, this is a fascinating offseason so far. Amidst the drama that's going on right now, you're going to be hearing from Shannon and I all throughout this uh, this leading up to spring training time. We're going to dive deeper into this. I'm excited about it. Speaking of diving deeper into things, Gary Hill and a number. You don't want to miss this. Coming up next. The Hot Stove Show on 710 ESPN Seattle. It is good to be talking baseball on a Tuesday night. It's so nice. I've missed this. You know, actually, one of my first times doing the Hot Stove League, I was working security at a mall. Protecting uh, what? Yes, protecting you, <laughs> Mike Flowers, and uh, and Rick Riz at the fending uh, off the moose at the, the mall. Alderwood Mall. Yeah, uh, I think in like 2012. It was oh, like okay, one of the first times that that was my first exposure, I think, to the hot stove show. And now here we are doing this together. This is a dream come true, Shannon. <laughs> well, that's what we're all about on the hot stove. We're about making dreams come true. Baseball. I don't think I have to really 
put this out there, it's changed a lot. I think the game is the same, but how we look at it and how others look at it is different. I think everybody watches the game in a different manner, and that is absolutely fine. Uh, You can take as much as you want that's available, or you can leave it. There are some people that watch it completely from an emotional standpoint. That's fine. There are people that go to games, don't even watch it. They just enjoy the experience of having a team and being in a ballpark. That's fine, too. There are others that break the game down to the nth degree. That is something that we have had to learn more and more about because the numbers have become a bigger part of the game. Why have the numbers become a bigger part of the game? I think that's an important question that hasn't always been answered. And I think that sometimes that's one of the obstacles to kind of opening up people to these numbers. Ten years ago, if you were a fan and you were up on OPS, on base plus slugging percentage, you were ahead of where most fans were in terms of understanding numbers. That's not necessarily the case now. And I think it is in some ways for the better for the fan because I I believe that fans now have the ability to evaluate individual players more closely to how teams look at them than maybe ever before. Right. And, uh, you know, it's a positive thing. There's a steep learning curve (laughs) with some of the new numbers that are coming out and how to contextualize and understand them. So, uh, yeah, it it is a challenge, though. It's a different access to the game. And along those lines, there are people who have never been in the game that have invested in the numbers and learning the numbers that are now working in baseball. There are stories all over the place. You might remember there were some blogs in the area, you know, 10, 15 years ago, and the head writers of those blogs ended up going and working for front offices. That's not as uncommon anymore. We're now hearing more about it and seeing it more, hearing and seeing it on the broadcast. And I think it's kind of helpful because, you know, sometimes there's something that you don't understand. You just close the door. Well, here's an opportunity to learn a little bit about it. And I was given the opportunity to give Gary Hill some homework. So he's going to help us out every week in breaking down some of these metrics, which will give you a better picture of, you know, you see a player that you might think is struggling. And we've done this as reporters. We'd ask Scott Service, well, so-and-so is just having a real tough time right now. And Scott will look at us, no, he's not. And that's because Scott has got access to the numbers. Baseball is a sport where you can do everything right and you're not going to get the result. There is a lot that is left up to chance. But if you continue to do the right thing, again, the probabilities should swing in your direction some. And that's what they're looking at. But so many different terms, so many different statistics. Well, we've got the best person in the world in Gary Hill to help us out with that. He's going to give us a little weekly tutorial every week. And today he talks in specific about O-Swing and why that's important. Well, there is no doubt if you've been following Mariners baseball the last few years, you have heard Scott Service and Jared Apoto talk about controlling the zone, and dominating the zone. And we're going to talk about that from a hitter's perspective. We're going to dive into a couple of numbers with the help of fan graphs. We're going to talk about O-swing percentage and a little of Z-swing percentage. Simply put, O-swing percentage swings at pitches outside of the strike zone. O, outside. Z-swing percentage swings at pitches inside the zone. Now, what I think is the most important aspect of this conversation is why controlling the zone is so important. And the numbers bear out why it's so important. So let's take a look at the Mariners, for example. So the Mariners last year were good. They were in the top 10, in fact, 10th in O-swing percentage. They swung at the fewest pitches outside the zone. So just over 30% pitches outside the zone, which is 10th best in baseball. That's a really good number. Now, Fangraphs has really good breakdown in a number of different categories. You can look at 
O swing percentage. You look, can look at Z swing percentage. Reminder that swings inside the zone. You can look at overall swing percentage, and you can look at the contact rates as well. And this is one of the data points that's uh, helpful when thinking about controlling the zone. So the Mariners last year, their contact percentage in swinging at pitches outside the zone, 61%. 61% making contact at swinging at pitches outside the zone. Now, what about swinging at pitches inside the zone? 84%. Now, think about that difference. 61% of the time, the Mariners made contact swinging outside the zone. 84% making contact swinging inside the zone. It's a big difference in contact rate. And one of the data points, when you ask the question, why is controlling the zone so important? That's one of the data points. It's simply easier to make contact inside the zone. Which makes sense. I mean, when you watch a baseball game and a ball is over the middle of the plate, it is easier to hit than one that is at the letters. So I don't think that data point surprises everyone, but maybe the difference in percentage is eye-popping. To break it down even further, let's look at batting average. And batting average obviously doesn't tell the whole story, but it can tell some of the story when we're talking about this. You look at in 2021, last season, batting average, if you break it down by parts of the strike zone. So in your mind, picture a strike zone like you're watching a game on TV and you see that strike zone and picture it split up into little boxes. So kind of 16 boxes total, four horizontal, four vertical. And then you can break down the numbers in each part of the strike zone. And then there's little boxes outside the strike zone. And you look at the batting averages, and no surprise, the middle of the strike zone, so picture the the two right in the middle of the strike zone. Last year in Major League Baseball, in that part of the zone, hitters hit 332 and 323. Now you go on the outer edges of the middle, down to 268 and 255. That's still within the zone. Now you start to wander to the corner of the plate, for example, the upper corners, you're looking at 206 and 202 batting averages, and that is inside the strike zone. Now, this is when things get pretty interesting on a breakdown, because when you start to venture outside the zone, averages really plummet right below the zone, still over the plate, 198 at 186 batting averages. You know, just outside the strike zone, 228. 211, 206, and 207, and that's just off the plate. And the further you get away, the lower the averages go. Middle-middle, the averages are the highest, and the further you get away from home plate, the lower the averages go, and they drop really fast. So, yeah, players get hits outside of the strike zone, no doubt about that, but the percentages go down in a hurry. And it's interesting to break down even further from a Mariner's perspective. And this is probably even a better way of looking at it. When you're hitting, what you're trying to do is hit the ball hard as often as possible. I mean, simply put, that's where you're trying to do. Hit the ball as hard as you can as often as possible. So when you look at specifically the Mariners from last season as a team and their exit velocity, 
Now we'll look at the zone in more simplistic terms in this one. So we'll look at the zone in kind of nine boxes. So picture the strike zone in nine boxes. The very middle of the plate, 92.7 miles per hour exit velocity for the Mariners last year. That's a really big number. Remember, hard hit balls are 95 miles per hour. So it's climbing close to that number. That's a big number. Now, just below that, so still in the strike zone, but lower part of the strike zone, still over the plate in the middle, 94 miles per hour. And the above portion of the strike zone, just above the middle in the strike zone, is 92 miles per hour. So big numbers. Now they get a little smaller when you get to the corner, still in the strike zone, 91.5 miles per hour and 89 miles per hour, but still good, really good. Now, this is when things get interesting, when you get outside the zone, on the corners, 81, 79, 81, and 80. And those are the corners just outside of the strike zone. So same thing when you look at batting averages, the farther away you get from the middle, the worse it gets. With exit velocity, it's the same thing. The farther away you get from the middle and outside the zone, the worse you get. So when we talk about controlling the zone, that's kind of why it matters so much. Because the numbers will tell you if you want to hit the ball as hard as you can, the most often you can, you have to do most of your damage inside the zone. Now let's circle back to where we began, O-swing percentage. Now being really good as a team at not swinging outside the zone doesn't guarantee you're going to have one of the best offenses in baseball, but you look at some of the teams in the top 10, the Dodgers have finished there the last two years as the best team not to swing outside the zone. Uh, the Giants were second best behind the Dodgers last year. They had a tremendous season offensively, sixth in runs scored. The Yankees and Astros, for example, both finished in the top 10 a season ago as well. So maybe the best way to think about it is, while it doesn't guarantee you a great offense, it gives you the best chance to have a great offense if you're swinging at good pitches. And there it is, James. And you heard Gary talk a little bit about O-Swing and the Mariners' 10th best in baseball, which, just because they didn't get the results all the time last year, you keep doing the right things there. You keep enforcing the control of the zone, the philosophies, the hitting strategies that they have. It should, it should go in the right direction. Yeah, I really appreciated his his look at how O-Swing and a little bit Z-Swing, but how that that reinforces control of the zone. We heard Scott Service and Jerry Depoto talk about their emphasis on controlling the zone, which is not a new concept in baseball, controlling the strike zone, but really understanding now using current analytics and how those things match up, it makes a lot more sense in what the results should look like from a statistical perspective if you're doing that. It is encouraging, I think, as a Mariners fan to see them making progress in controlling the zone and the numbers backing it up. And uh, standouts on this Mariners team, J.P. Crawford is one. New Mariner Adam Frazier. Keep an eye on what they do now that you know a little bit more about O-Swing. All right, we've got more coming up next as the Hot Stove continues. The Hot Stove Show on 710 ESPN Seattle. And we're back with the Hot Stove. And as we mentioned earlier, we're doing things a little bit differently right now. A little bit of a different cast of characters. And, man, James, have we got a character right now? (laughs) If anyone knows how much of a character we have, it's me. A good old friend of mine, a good old friend of ours. 
going back for uh, what you know several decades now. Uh, <laughs> Mike Salk from the Mike Salk Show Hello. joining us. I think we should just keep going and not let him talk. Yeah, sounds just good. Say, you know, <laughs> it would be like when people come on my show. You know, I just want to give a little background here on what we're doing. And we have, and it might surprise some people, but a lot of baseball people at 710. We've got a lot of baseball people that are itching to talk baseball. Over the last few years, it's like, I want to talk baseball, more baseball, more baseball. And I think we need to get to know these people and get to know their baseball stories and their baseball. Who the heck are you listening to at different parts of the day? And this is a great opportunity. Uh, you know Mike Salk a little bit. Do you know Mike Salk? Baseball. Let, mm. Let's get into that a right. little bit right now, Mike. And your baseball. And you know what? I'm I'm going to ask you the question that I ask every ball player at some point. What is your earliest memory of the game? Uh, probably Carl Yastrzemski's final game uh, he ever played at Fenway Park against the Cleveland Indians. I want to say it's like 1983. It's about five years old. And after his final game, I grew up in Boston. He took the lap around Fenway Park and mm. shook hands and slapped five with all the fans who were close enough. And that was always just like a, a very early memory. Uh, first game I ever went to was also at Fenway with my dad. We saw the then California Angels, Rod Carew uh, playing for the Angels. Jim Rice bunted in that game, which was did not happen a whole lot for a big slugging uh, left fielder like Rice. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, uh, baseball was an obsession as a kid. I mean, we we, we watched every game. I mean, that's what you did. I didn't go to that many games. Uh, we probably went to more hockey games than we went to baseball games. But in terms of watching every night, I mean, that's just kind of what you did. And look, growing up in the Northeast, baseball is religion there. I mean, it just, it, you know, the, the effect of the 1967 and 1975 Red Sox on my parents' generation and, and people that came before me, the impossible dream season, et cetera. I mean, it just created this love affair. For me, it was 86, obviously, and, and watching horror as all of that unfolded at the very end against the Mets. But leading up to that is probably what hooked me for good as a baseball fan. And um, Seattle legend Dave Henderson hitting the home run off of Donnie Moore to win game seven of the of the uh, ALCS that year over the Angels. I mean, like it was it was super intense and passionate and definitely for, you know, then it was playing baseball and playing, uh, you know, first T-ball and clinic and little league and, you know, kind of made it up through uh, through high school until I hurt my hand and, and uh, needed to learn how to pitch and or catch and throw with my right hand. So that kind of ended like a real legitimate career in baseball for me, um, but was still able to play, you know, high school baseball. And I just I love the sport. A lot of us grow up loving baseball. It's a part of our families. Like you said, it's a part of your heritage growing up in your family and in your region. How did you get started actually in baseball media? Because that's really where your sports talk origin is. Yeah. Uh, once I was trying to break into to sports radio, and I had been, you know, I was parking cars, and I was working at a singular cell phone store. That shows how long ago, I guess, now it was. That company doesn't exist anymore. But, like, that's kind of what I was doing to... To make money and and you know got a job doing Sports Center updates for a you know five thousand watt dying station in Boston that was like its its signal faced the water so as long as you were in the ocean you could hear it but if you were on dry land nobody could hear the station it's a crab fisherman yeah it wasn't station. it wasn't destined for great success but <laughs> but we. What I just started doing is like, hey, can I go cover the teams? Because nobody would, you know, we didn't have anybody to do that. And so it started with the Bruins. Hey, can I go cover the Bruins? They're like, well, we can't pay you for that. I'm like, okay, just give me a press pass and I'll go cover them. Like, okay. And so eventually started covering the Red Sox that way, which was terrifying at the beginning. And, you know, this was 2000. 
six was my first year. I went to cover one game in 2005. They lost a playoff game to the White Sox. And then 2006 is my first year there. And I was terrified. I screwed up so many things. Thankfully, there are some nice people in the media in Boston that I knew that were really great to me. That kinda, doesn't make a lot of sense. There are a couple. Most of them are awful. There are a couple of <laughs> nice people. Uh, my friend Joey McDonald and Joe Haggerty, a couple other people were really nice, took me under their wing. Kevin Winter works at ESPN Radio and and like helped me like not make too many of the just awful mistakes. And I did the first day Theo Epstein was talking to some reporters and I stuck my microphone in his face and he's moving all the way around like he's talking anywhere other than into my microphone and I finally realized oh this is not an on the record set and like so apologized to him and all that but like there's just so many pitfalls but that's how I got started is getting to cover those Red Sox teams and and was on the road with the 2007 World Series team and uh, and then soon after that, the station went defunct and uh, I got to the offer to come out here. And, and when I first started at 710, um, not only was I hosting the show with Brock, but I, I did two years of Mariner pre and post game shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was part of my uh, original job here for the first two years I was here, which was great. Uh, and an awesome way to kind of to, to meet the folks associated with the Mariners product. So you're hosting your own show from six to ten in the mornings on 710. You since have had the baseball every day sort of thing on the shelf, but how did that inform your situation now and how you view the team, how you cover the team, how you understand it? And that's a that's a serious baseball background that not a lot of people in sports talk right. in this city have. How do those things connect now to where you are? Well, let me first say the job I actually would have liked is Shannon's job. <laughs> I'm not joking. Before I took the job at 710, I wanted Shannon's job. How does it influence it? I mean, I, I think that, you know, the idea of trying to get information, it never goes away. And I, I try to bring that into the show of things that I, I love. You haven't been able to do it here the last couple of years because of COVID, but just going down. Baseball's about sitting around and talking. That's like the, and Shannon knows this better than anybody. That time between what, 3.30 in the afternoon and 6 o'clock in the afternoon is the best time for just sitting around the ballpark and talking to players. And if you kind of get some of the right people and start to learn a little bit about the game, you know, you can really learn a ton about baseball. And hopefully that, that you know, integrates into the show every day. I can think of a handful of players who taught me the most through those conversations. And it's not like they're trying to teach you, but they it, it's... It was pretty cool for me because they, they treated me with a respect that mm-hmm. I don't think I had quite earned at that point, but they treated me like they would any other reporter, and I learned a lot. What are some of those conversations that you had? Can you think of uh, Most one? of them are just me bumbling around and being embarrassing. Uh, I'll tell you, you know who's one of the first people to be really nice to me and, and, and teach me some of the game, and it unfortunately just passed away, was Julio Lugo. Mm. Uh, was really, really generous with his time with me. Again, when you're talking about being in the Red Sox clubhouse at that time, there might have been 60 members of the media walking around a teeny little clubhouse with 25 players. I mean, it was awful. And and to, and and the and the players there are incredibly distrustful of anybody in the media because they've likely been burned by somebody. And then if they don't know who you are because you're a nobody like I was, I mean, they're, they're, it's really a rough. Uh, a rough situation. Um, Dustin Pedroia taught me a fair amount about the game, and he would always be there early and just kind of sit outside by the dugout during BP or before BP. And I, I, he he's so, again, generous with his time, but willing to kind of teach the game a little bit and what was going on. Um, uh, relie- some of the relievers are always fun to talk to. Uh, Javi Lopez is a name that comes to mind, left-handed pitcher. God, I embarrassed myself with him, and he just was so gracious about it. And I'd read in the in the in the media guide that he was from Puerto Rico, 
And I, so I met him, and you know, he speaks perfect, unaccented English. I'm like, wow, your English is tremendous. He goes, well, I grew up in D.C. Like, oh, <laughs> I just read that you were from Puerto Rico. And he's like, yeah, I moved when I was like six months old. Like, oh, got it. And so, But he's just really kind and, and generous with his time and, and willing to talk about the game. Here in Seattle, you know, it's funny. Some of the pitchers, I was just chatting with David Ardsma the other day. Jared Washburn was always really good about teaching me parts of the game. Uh, he's another one. I walked right into it with him too, man. I w- we were talking the first day I met Jared Washburn. We were talking about um, Mike Sosha, who I think is very overrated, and he, uh, Jared actually I think agrees with me. And if you uh, don't say. <laughs> and I was t- I was like, man, how did he ever like not bring in a? How did he ever leave somebody in to face Ortiz in that moment, Game Three of the? And he's like, yeah, that was me. I gave up the home run. <laughs> And I was like, oh, no, I didn't even think of that. Cross so, him off my list. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, traveling with my kids, and I saw a, a picture, like a like a framed picture of Ortiz hitting the walk-off against the Angels. And I snapped a shot and sent it to him, like, hey, it's made me think of you. Uh, but he taught me a lot about the game and told me a lot of stories about how to kind of grow up in the game and what it was like coming through the minors. Um, gosh, I could probably go on, but th- those are a few that just kind of jump out to me. We've just got one more minute here with Mike Salk. And Mike, uh, you know, you, you talk to the people every morning, Monday through Friday, six, seven, eight, six. nine, not, <laughs> six. Yeah. What are you doing? I don't know. <laughs> well, what are you excited about this year for the Mariners? And what are you excited to see and, and, and be able to talk about in the morning? Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's easy to get caught up thinking about and outthink the room on this one, but it's, it's still Kelnick for me, right? I mean, what we got to see in September as hopefully just a little piece of what's actually there from him. I mean, I want to see more. He's a fascinating human in Mm -hmm. addition to his ability to play baseball and just trying to see if he can overcome the mental side of it. I'm fascinated by Jared Kelnick. Obviously, if Julio Rodriguez ends up coming up this year, which he will, he'll get right thrown right into that same level of just fascination. But I'll say over the last week or so here, just reading that Baseball America stuff about George Kirby. Not that I didn't know he was a top prospect. I knew he was. I guess I hadn't realized how much he had separated himself from the other top pitchers. And they've got a bunch of them. I mean, Brash and Williamson and Hancock, et cetera. I didn't realize that he had separated himself the way he has in the view of, of, of evaluators. I mean, they're talking about him as a legitimate ace, not a number one pitcher, an ace pitcher. And there's only a handful of those guys in the game. So if you're talking about a hand, you know, one of a handful in Kirby, one of a handful in, in Julio, and then adding, you know, Kelnick and Logan Gilbert and some, I'm, I'm excited to see what that youth movement looks like. As are we, Mike, thank you for sharing your story with us. Thanks for inviting me. This was great. We'll do it again. Well, James, we did it. The first hot stove show of the season is finished and we have so much left to talk about next week. I can't wait. <laughs> and that's the good news. There is a next week. We are fully committed to an hour of baseball talk every Tuesday night. I want to thank Brandon Williamson for joining us from Peoria. Great to hear what's going on down there right now. Of course, Gary Hill just making us all smarter, which I know I need a little bit of that. So he that, certainly made me smarter. Well. I don't know if we can make you much smarter, but he made me a lot smarter, so I appreciate that. Good answer there. <laughs> And uh, Mike Salk learned a little bit more about him. I've known he's baseball through and through, but some good stories there as well. We are going to do this again next week, as I said, and we'll have something a little bit different to talk about. We next week, by this time next week, we'll know if there are any new Hall of Famers. So we will have that discussion as well as keep you updated on all of the latest. Gary will have another number for us and much, much more. 
For James Osborne, I am Shannon Dreyer. We'll talk to you next week. 